Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome to episode 186 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I am Brian Salvatore, and I will be joined in just a minute by Chris McShane. But before we get to that, I want to address a situation here. We have not gotten an email in a few weeks, and we like email on this show. So if you have any questions for us, for any of our contributors, it could be about the Major League Club, the Minor League Club, food at the stadium, um, our Japanese baseball team of note, anything you want to talk about, you can email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We have a jam-packed show full of lots of fun stuff. But first, Chris McShane and I are going to have a conversation about the last week or so in Metsville. Well, Chris, we are going to talk about the last couple of uh, games, but we got to start with their West Coast road trip. This was um, the longest road trip of the year thus far, as well as the one that put them furthest away from home. They got into Colorado at something like 4 in the morning before Friday's game, And the team just looked pretty tired, and the results were, you know, less than great. They went, um, what was it, four and seven on the road trip? Yeah, four and seven. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not, as you said before we started recording, not the worst road trip in team history, but certainly not, you know, a great one either. Was there anything during the road trip that you took note of that you thought was problematic or is this just a case of uh, the team being tired and not playing their best? Yeah, nothing nothing in particular or nothing as a trend, I would say. But just it was a little bit frustrating to not do a little bit better, at least against San Diego and Colorado. Yeah. Um, yeah taking you know, two you, from the Dodgers seemed to be what everybody was hoping they'd do. Yeah, splitting a four-game series with the Dodgers when Kershaw pitches – and it's you know it's not the playoffs where it's Kershaw versus Syndergaard or Harvey or Degrom, and we all love Bartolo, right? Uh, and Bartolo held his own last year in that same matchup, but Bartolo versus Kershaw is not something that you expect to go well on <laughs> you know on a given night. And when it right. does, it, it's almost as magical as the home run that he hit. But, Nothing uh, is as magical as the home run that he hit. <laughs> Nothing. I've witnessed childbirth, Chris. Yeah, it, there you go. <laughs> almost, almost as magical. Almost, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it's one of those things that I think for Mets fans who you know, no matter how long your memory is, if you are old enough to remember 2006, that West Coast trip that they had during that season that sort of solidified and defined their awesomeness that year. Yeah. I think spoiled us all. Uh, yeah, and I think Mets fans still sort of expect terrible things on West Coast trips. Yep. But not accomplishing, what was it in 2006? I think it was 9 and 1. Uh, and it was something, it was San Francisco, Arizona, and then either, either one of the other two NL West uh, California teams. That was what, June or May? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was June. Yeah. So it was. You know, that that really, like, that's the very high end of the West Coast road trip spectrum. But, yeah, this one, I was hoping that they could come out of it 6-5 and five or, or even 5-6 and six once it got later in the trip. You know, you, they split the two four-game series. Uh, and, you know, we also got spoiled last summer by what they did in Colorado, which right. was just annihilate the Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually in Colorado for that series, but I was on the other side of the state, and uh, it was so tantalizing because I wanted to just, I was at my best friend's wedding, but I, I really wanted to rush back to go to a game because the Mets were just playing so well that series, but, you know, it didn't work out. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's anything too concerning, and I, I was saying this again before we started recording, I feel like this show is a lot of us not being super worried about Mets stuff right now. Uh, right, but you know, I don't think there was anything that you noted from their play that was particularly off-putting. It wasn't like all of a sudden the team stopped having an eye at the plate or the bullpen just couldn't get an out. Like everyone, you know, everyone played less than you'd hope. That, uh, you know, not up to the level you'd hope they played to. But nobody was. It, the team didn't look abysmal. You know, there have certainly been West Coast road trips where the team has looked absolutely indefensible and this wasn't one of those road trips so yeah know. they 
They were competitive. Aside from Kershaw, Cologne, they were competitive in, you know, I think all of the losses. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I think the losses to San Diego really bummed me out because that just looked like the 2011 Mets. You know, right. just, just a team that couldn't hit for anything, a team that couldn't get any momentum going, and, you know, that brings back bad memories for me of the of the, the lean years. But, you know, then you, 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 you look at that, and then you look at them tonight against the Nationals, a very, very good team, going up against a very, very good pitcher in Max Scherzer, and they did fine. You know, the West Coast road trip didn't ruin them for the season. I think sometimes we can get in these uh, in these little spells of depression because they have a bad road trip or something, and then you see that, no, they're still quite a good baseball team. Yeah, yeah, and coming off that trip, you know, with the four-game losing streak uh, and bouncing back by opening the National Series with a, a pretty nice win with David Wright and Lucas Duda out of the lineup. Yep. Uh, yeah, that that's that feels pretty good. It does feel pretty good. Uh, the other player out of the lineup was uh, Travis Darno, who is still on the disabled list, and uh, it doesn't look like he's coming off the DL anytime soon. Um, you mentioned him before that he is not at the Mets facility right now, and that the optimistic uh, return date is probably still what a month or so away. That yeah, I mean if we're if we're speculating. Uh, which I guess by definition we are, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be any sooner than that. You know, I mean, if it, I'm not going to get worked up over where he wants to make his shoulder feel better, but if he's not at the facility, he's clearly not getting ready to play in any sort of game, whether that's extended spring training games or Gulf Coast League, if we, you know, go far enough that those games are happening, or the St. Lucie Mets, um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like he's going to do that anytime soon. And, you know, it's coming into the year, I was probably as high on him as anybody was just because he looked so good when he played last year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, I I still think he's fully capable of that when he gets back. But, you know, it, it, he... It's hard to see him as a guy who's going to play more than 70 games a year until he actually does it, you know? At what point does the stigma of being an oft-injured guy turn into the reality of being an oft-injured guy? I feel like we're close. I mean, I'm, you know, it's his body, so it's certainly not his work ethic or anything like that. You know, it's just the way things have gone for him as a professional athlete, you know, so it doesn't make me like him any less or respect him any less, but I think we might be at the point. I felt like I was maybe not the only, but among probably the few saying, well, maybe he's not injury prone or whatever for like the last year or two. And then this one, I'm just like, ah, I don't know. I don't think I can. Well, so many of his injuries were kind of random occurrences that weren't necessarily tied to a, a bum knee or a faulty elbow or something. You know, it was just these these injuries would pop up kind of randomly, but they always happened to pop up on him. You know, and instead of these fluke things being spread across the team like they are for every team in baseball, it seemed like for the last couple of years, all the fluky injuries were happening to him. So I was with you. I thought, you know, now he's not as injury prone as people are saying. He just had a lot of bad luck. But we're at the point now where that bad luck might be something that's a little bit more predictable than not. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't have a whole lot of gripes with the off season overall, but I don't know. I mean, not that there were amazing catchers available, and you know, I certainly didn't think the Mets should go out and spend a ton of money at the position with Darno and Plawecki in house. But it's nothing against Renee Rivera. I'm just a little bit concerned. Like, if it doesn't click for Plawecki and Darno is out for a month or more, I'm I'm a little bit worried about that position. And, you know, overall, if you have a defense first guy back there, it, it might not be the end of the world. You know, the team 
has good hitters throughout the lineup otherwise. But one of the very appealing things about this team was having guys who are above league average at every position, mm-hmm. you know, or, or at least at league average uh, as a hitter. So, yeah, it, it, I actually think, I don't know. I don't want to say it's more concerning than DeGrom and Harvey not quite looking like themselves, but I can see, I have an easier time seeing DeGrom and Harvey, you know, turning things around and, and getting into a groove than I do seeing catcher being as good as I thought it would be coming into the season. Well, part of that is that you've seen DeGrom and Harvey be great. We haven't seen a sustained great Travis Darnot yet. Right, yeah. We've seen flashes of it. And he, he, people are really getting on him for throws and all that. And, you know, I I think even with the state of his shoulder, his throws weren't really worse than Ploiecki's. And, you know, Ploiecki isn't here for his arm. No, certainly Uh, not. But, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that, to some degree, the way that Darnell performed overall was was something you know, sort of the nagging feeling in the shoulder. I don't think that was instantaneous. That he just heard it and went up. Oh, you know, I'm on the DL. I feel like that was probably something that was going on that we just didn't know about. Right. Um. So let's talk Plawecki for a second here. You know, he's certainly looked better in the last, what, seven or eight games than he did when he first uh, took over for Darno. He's hitting the ball with a little bit more authority. He had another hit tonight. But we are recording this Tuesday night, by the way, after the uh, the Mets and Syndergaard shut out the Nationals. Uh, yeah, he, looked, he had another hit tonight. He, he threw out a base runner in a very, very um, close play tonight, a play that... Uh, the entire broadcast thought was going to be overturned, but the Mets got the call going their way. Uh, yeah. Do you think that Plawecki has been showing you something that makes you feel a little bit less worried about? Like, let's put it this way. Do you, are you feeling more or less worried right now than you were when Darno first went down? Like, Do you feel like, oh, Plawecki has this covered more, or do you feel like it's just as bad as you thought it would be? Uh, I mean, it, the, the recent play is encouraging. So, you know, it, it's it's been such a short span of time that I don't think I'm convinced one way or the other. But objectively speaking, he's been better than he was last year, you know, in his first, uh, I think he's at 23 games now this mm-hmm. season. So, the you know there's hope there he always hit throughout his minor league career and he you know he might not be a major power hitter or anything but he good guy who's going to make contact and get on base at a decent rate and uh you know coming out of tonight's game the on base percentage is at 329 in 2016 that's not that bad um but i think i just need to see a little more sustained uh even if it's just doubles just some sort of power. So for you, it's the pow- power is the biggest issue with him. I think so. I mean, it's really whatever way I, I, I kind of say this in general, like whatever way a guy can be a good offensive player is fine with me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know obviously the, the Mets are sort of built a certain way, but if like he's a guy who just, you know, hits 260, gets on base at like a 340 clip, uh, you know, that that's a pretty big walk rate, but that's the disparity is even bigger than that for him right now uh, in his major league career. It's that works. That's fine. You know, I think, and that's sort of one of my favorite things with the catch all offensive stats, you know, whether it's OPS plus or way to runs creative plus, you know, if you have a preference between the two, I think they both, they, they weight certain things more heavily, but I like, the idea that you can be Ichiro and rate really well in those, or you can be, uh, you know, Ioannis Espedes and do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that oftentimes we tend to fall into this pattern of that there are good, there are good and bad, good offensive players. You know, uh, 
offensive players that you would like to have and that you or that you would not like to have on your team. And obviously some of that is process and I understand that. But I, I think that there are definitely underrated offensive skills and you know, maybe Plucky will start to show some of those. I, I'm not super worried about Plucky, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that he is a, a real problem for this team. I think that the bigger problem I have with Plucky is what happens when Darno gets healthy. Because if playing every day is what's getting him improving, then and and if he's struggling against major league pitching, but you know doing well in the minors, well then are you going to send him down to the minor leagues where he's going to, where he doesn't necessarily have too much more to work on, or are you going to sit him at the bench and you know I, I just I'm more worried about Pilecki's place on the team with a healthy Darno. I think when Darno's hurt, it makes it makes for a relatively he makes for a relatively fine replacement. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if it ultimately lingers and it turns into a situation where they need to trade for somebody to add to it for this season. You know, I think if it got to a point that you see that Darno is either out for, you know, three months or, or the entire year, something like that, then they'd have to consider it. Uh, the, the nice thing is that the team is good enough that they can get by with with what they have. I don't know. I, I guess, it, although it is a concern, it, it's not quite as much. I think I, I'd rather have Juan Uribe on the team over Eric Campbell. Well, yeah, than, for, for than every like possible a, reason. Yes, than, uh, you know, than a slightly better backup catcher for Kevin Ploiecki. But, you know, I was, I was relying on Darno. So if he's not here... I'm, I'm going to be a little bit concerned. That's probably the most negative thing I've said on the podcast so far in the last three weeks. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> uh, I don't think either of us have anything negative to say about Noah Syndergaard's performance tonight, though. No. Seven no. innings, <laughs> ten strikeouts, no walks, uh, five hits, I believe, you gave up? Yeah, that sounds right. Something like that. Um, you know, looked absolutely dominant. How good is he? I mean, how how good can Syndergaard be? Is this the real Syndergaard? Or is this the high end of what we're going to see from him? I think it's the real Syndergaard. It's a... Hot damn. Yeah, I mean, it's just... The stuff is so, so good. And, you know, the... The ERA stands out in its own right. But the, the strikeout and walk rates are like... They're like good relief pitcher numbers as a starter. I mean, the, the one thing with these guys as a group that we are beyond spoiled, and you know, Harvey and Degrom might not be there right now in general in terms, you know, velocity strikeouts, that kind of stuff. Uh, but none of them walk anybody. Like Bartolo Colon's the guy who really excels at it, but but. Syndergaard now is at 1.52 walks per nine. That's yeah. He like, started seven games and walked nine people. Yeah, that's insane. That's, that's like incredible. You can, th- you can throw 100 miles an hour regularly. You know, throw other pitches, it, that pitch and other pitches that get guys to swing and miss, and just not walk anybody. You know that that's. You never know how things are going to go over the course of a career, and how you know. Some guys can be great for maybe a year or two or three. Some guys can be great for 15 to 20. Um, but I, Syndergaard, you dream on, and what he is right now, it's Nolan Ryan without the walks. I mean, just, just look, not even digging too deep right now. So last year, he pitched 150 innings, and he gave up 19 home runs. He's at a third of that now. He's at just shy of 50 innings, 46.1, and he's only given up three home runs. He's striking out a ton of guys. He's not walking anybody. He's not giving up a lot of hard contact. I mean, I don't know how his game could improve overall except for holding on runners more. And he lets so few runners on base. Who gives a shit? Right. <laughs> no, honestly, it doesn't matter as much because no one's on base when he's pitching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 touched on that a little bit either a week or two ago, but mm-hmm. but yeah, the the uh, 
it wasn't a story tonight. The Mets only scored two runs, and uh, Noah Syndergaard was on the mound, and you know the base runners he allowed, they they didn't run all over him, and it didn't really matter. You know, and that that Plowacki throw and caught stealing obviously was a was a good outcome in the time that they did try to steal, mm-hmm. but but yeah, it's not. I don't know. I think he showed tonight why, even if that base had been stolen successfully, and even if that call was overturned, and I think the booth might have been onto something. I think, to me, he he did look safe. It might have been an instance where you couldn't technically see his hand touch the base. Right, and so you can't overturn it without actual evidence. Right, and it, it that sort of. Uh, I'm a huge supporter of replay. I'm not. I'm not with the booth when <laughs> when it comes to the topic in general, but it it's sort of one of the challenging things with replay in general in in sports. Uh, and I think the NHL's done a, a pretty good job. Obviously, the playing surface in that case, or field in baseball, uh, is very different. But when you don't have fixed cameras and you're relying just on TV stuff, it, it can be you can get weird angles and all all that sort of thing. Uh, you know, where it's not standardized. Mm-hmm. So I'm on a replay tangent here. But <laughs> but the point is that even if that was a stolen base, the way Syndergaard looked tonight, it's entirely possible that it wouldn't have mattered. You know, and I know, I know specifically on that play, Jason Worth followed it up with a single. Mm-hmm. But you can never, you know, that's a different scenario. You can't assume that that just would have happened. Right, because he didn't throw a ball for, he didn't throw a pitch for, you know, two minutes or whatever it was. And the infield would have been aligned differently if, if there was a man on second and maybe he would have thrown a different pitch if there was a man on second. You know, you can't, you can't just make those presumptions. Right. So, yeah, he's, uh, He's the real deal, man. I mean, it's, you know, I, I go back to it and I, you know, I try to keep it in perspective. But leaving spring training in 2015, by no means did I come out of there discovering Noah Syndergaard. The guy was already very, very, very <laughs> well known at that point. But I, it was the last thing, it, he was the last major league pitcher and he wasn't even a major leaguer yet but he was clearly on the way there so he was the last guy i saw on that trip who was destined to be on the 2015 mets as a pitcher Mm -hmm. and i just i left there and i was like oh i need more of that like (laughs) it was it was just it was so good and and he's better than that now like that what i saw that day I was like, oh, if he does that, I need to be there every time he plays, you know, in, in Queens. Like, that that has to be top priority to get to that game. Uh, and to take what he was doing then and then make that jump to the big leagues and somehow improve, you know? I mean, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't throw a slider <laughs> a, a year and a couple months ago. And now he's throwing one that looks like it's the most ridiculous slider baseball's ever seen. Yeah. Um He's one of these guys that I, I think he's reached the most incredible plateaus he's gonna reach, and then he hits two home runs in a game. Or then yeah. he, you know, develops a ninety five mile an hour slider, or he just, you know, takes a, a pretty good Nationals lineup and makes them look silly. I mean, did you see him against Harper tonight? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, you know, Bryce Harper is he he lives up to the hype around him right now. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And you know, Harvey's had his number too, where he's sort of dominated against them. So if the Mets have two starting pitchers, you know, and we'll see what Harvey does uh, you know, well, given our timing here, we'll see what Harvey does tonight. Right. Uh, but if the Mets have two starting pitchers who can neutralize Bryce Harper, that's a, a big, big weapon. And, you know, you never know how the rotation is going to turn anytime 
uh, you face a team over the course of the season, but when you play a team 19 times a year, the odds are they're going to see each one of your starting pitchers probably at least twice. Uh, and, you know, if the Mets can get that that draw that they get one of those two against who, the guy who might be the best hitter in the game, that can really help. <laughs> Do you, you know, think there's any value in the? I've seen a bunch of folks on Twitter saying that the Mets should always line up their uh, their rotation with Syndergaard and Harvey against the Nationals whenever they play the Nationals. Do you think there's any value in messing with the rotation that much to achieve that? No, not not to like, not to the extent that you're putting anybody else out or throwing off someone else's schedule to accomplish it. You know, I think if you come into it. What, let me pull up the uh, the full season schedule here. You know, it, last year it was what coming out of the All Star break they sort of lined it up. Yes, right. That was that was one of the things that Matt Williams got criticized for that the Mets came out of the break lining it up to to uh, face them with the best pitchers they had, and the Nationals did not. Right. I mean, that's one of many Matt Williams uh, kerfuffles. Yes. I also feel like, you know, while we're in the midst of this national series, uh, the Dusty Baker love is a little over the top so oh, well, far. Yeah. But I that was full. That was to be expected, it, you know, coming into the season. Dusty Baker is somebody who... All right, so my dad's a baseball fan, but my dad is not a, a particularly analytical baseball fan. So for guys right. like my dad, Dusty Baker is the best manager in the history of baseball. <laughs> guys right. just love him. They think he's great with players and he's tough nosed and he was a good ball player himself. But you know, I've never been particularly a fan of Dusty Baker's managing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't <laughs> that is that is all accurate. So just looking at the series they have with the Nationals the rest of the way. Obviously, you know, they're in a continuous stretch again now uh, where they had the off day on Monday and, you know, they get the Brewers this weekend and then they go right back and play the Nationals in D.C. So that that sort of is what it is. Uh, they play them again in late June, but that's also coming off six games in a row against the Royals and Braves where, you know, there's only one off day there to, to work with and tinker with. Uh, and then they play them four games at home going into the all-star break, which, you know, I don't know what the standings are going to look like at that point, but we could go with <laughs> the range of emotions that we might be feeling on the morning of July 11th is pretty wide. That is true. But that's, again, that's like you're going into the break. So if anything, you might be, you know, you got Terry Collins managing the all-star game and he should not be caring about the all-star game in the least. Uh, and then they don't play him again for a little while. It's it's the whole baseball schedule the last couple of years. I get why they do what they're doing. You know, moving things like the Yankee series to weeknights and sort of bunching mm -hmm. up division play in the first and last month of the season. But they don't play him again until September. Right. Yeah. It's so like to not play him at all in the first six weeks of the season until now. And then play him a bunch in the course of nine days, and then play him again a month later, and then that that series and the next one are kind of bunched up, and then have that long break again. Like I get what they're going for, but, and and maybe this is just me being optimistic. You know, by the middle of September, maybe the games against the Nationals aren't, you know, quite as relevant as they. Uh, they might have been in the middle of August. Yeah. But yeah, overall, they don't really, you know, you look at all of these series, they don't really face the Nationals in spots where they can mess with the rotation too much. And I think one of the only ways to do it that could potentially work is to throw in that sixth uh, starting pitcher and, you know, I don't necessarily need to get Logan Verrett an extra start or if everybody's healthy at the same time, you know, I don't I don't need to mess with Zach Wheeler if, if right. he's in the mix. Right. I guess the only, yeah. 
the only way there is if you you know like if you were to bring up Wheeler right before the All Star break, and so you're able to then mess with it a little bit. But I, I'm with you. I think it's overthinking things, and it's not like the Mets are Harvey De, Harvey Syndergaard and then three terrible pitchers. You know, every one of the Mets starters should have a legitimate chance to beat Washington every time they play at them. Yeah. Yeah. And even Bartolo, you know, I, I feel like we know the good and the bad. And we saw the bad as a pitcher recently. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we uh, last night he was either great or terrible or somewhere in between. <laughs> we, we don't know uh, ahead of time as we record, but. He was probably very entertaining. Still, yes, we can guarantee that. But he, there's some part of me that says, even though the last two years he's had the ERA over four, that he might still have, you know, some, even though he's older and everything else, he might have a season in him that's like, you know, 3.2 ERA in 150, 170 innings. You know, and I'm, I'm accounting for Zach Wheeler coming back and taking his starts uh, later in the season there. If not, the innings total might be even a little bit higher. But there's some part of me that thinks that that is still a possibility, you know. And it's, yeah. I know he, he might just beat up on bad teams, but I don't know. I, I, I could see it happening. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think that just it's a pretty good place to wrap up for uh, for right now. So thanks, Chris. Yeah, you got it. Hey everyone, Steve Schreiber here. It's time for our weekly This Week in SNY Minute on Amazing Avenue Audio. So, during Tuesday evening's game, uh, Keith Hernandez was back in the booth with the Mets, uh, thankfully. Uh, it was a long time off for Keith, uh, and we, we can't go too long without him. Uh, and so during the uh, seventh inning, uh, he threw a little shade at Dusty Baker, who came out to uh, talk to his starting pitcher. Um, so, of course, we all know about Dusty Baker's penchant for leaving pitchers in too long, Uh, Mark Pryor, Kerry Wood. Um, So Keith had a little uh, snide remark for him. Baker has not yet made a call, and Scherzer may be trying to talk his way back in. Uh, I think because he threw so many pitches his last game, Dusty's a guy that likes to leave his starters in there. You know that. Ah. Keith and Dusty seem to be uh, buddies, uh, judging by uh, Keith's comments earlier in Wednesday night's game, but uh, it's always great to hear him throw some shade. He, he doesn't do it all that often, but when he does, it always always cuts to the core. That's it for tonight's This Week in SNY Minute. I'm Steve Schreiber, back to Amazing Avenue Audio. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today we're going to talk about how the Mets ditched Daniel Murphy and acquired Neil Walker, and how it's still the right decision, even though Daniel Murphy is still hitting the cover off the ball and Neil Walker has cooled off a little bit. And first, let's recap before we get to why it was the right decision. Last offseason, the Mets offered a qualifying offer to Daniel Murphy for about $16 million in one year. He turned it down, which is what we all thought he was going to do because of the amazing postseason he had where he hit seven home runs in 14 games. And then he took a multi-year offer from the Nationals, who the Mets are now competing with for the National League East Championship. And now he's playing really well for the Nationals. He's playing second base. He's hitting 399 with a 431 on base percentage and a 622 slugging percentage, and he has five home runs. And at first, everything seemed cool because 
The guy that the Mets chose to replace, Daniel Murphy, Neil Walker, who they acquired from Pittsburgh in an offseason trade for John Neese, who's now pitching not so well for Pittsburgh. He's already allowed a bunch of home runs. But they got Neil Walker. He started crushing the ball in April. He's since predictably cooled off a little bit. He's not going to turn into a total bust. He's probably going to hit 20 home runs and get on base about 33% of the time, hit 270, 280. He's going to do Neil Walker things probably for the rest of the year. He's probably He might not hit another home run from the right side of the plate after hitting three of those in April. But Neil Walker plays pretty good defense, and or at least average defense, and he's been pretty good. But the most important thing about this deal, it was always about the future. Even though 2016 is really important because it's we don't know how long this Mets window of opportunity for winning the World Series is. 2016 is important. That's why the Mets traded John Neese for Neil Walker. Walker is on a one-year deal. That covers this one year of contention, and they can figure out the rest later. The rest of that plan is probably going to involve Dilson Herrera, the second baseman at AAA Las Vegas, who is slated to play second base this year once Daniel Murphy left for Washington. He's playing really well for the Las Vegas 51s. Last year, he hit three home runs in about 100 plate appearances at the big league level. He struck out a lot. He didn't look entirely ready, but in that small sample size, he showed some potential. And now he's continuing to show potential with eight home runs in Las Vegas already in just over a month of AAA baseball. And he's hitting over 300. He's not walking as much as we'd like, but there's still time to improve that. He's walked a little more in the past. But he has a chance to be a good defensive second baseman with above-average power. When I look at him, because of his stature, I think Jose Altuve. But Jose Altuve is going to be an MVP candidate this year if the Astros ever get their act together. So I wouldn't go that far. But he's got an interesting power-speed defense potential that is really exciting for the future. And there would be... Nowhere to put that potential if the Mets signed Daniel Murphy to a three- or five-year contract this offseason just because they needed him for one more year. So the Mets still do the right thing. It doesn't matter if Daniel Murphy's hitting 400, if he's hitting 500, if he's hitting 600. <laughs> Maybe if he was hitting 600, it'd be the wrong thing. But the point is, they needed one year of a veteran second baseman. Daniel Murphy turned down the one-year offer. They were able to trade for Neil Walker for a pitcher that has the potential to be useful, especially with how fragile pitching arms are these days. But John Neese was expendable. They have Logan Verrett. They have Bartolo Colon. They hopefully have Zach Wheeler coming back. Rafael Montero even has started to pitch pretty well in Las Vegas. So John Neese was expendable. They get rid of him. They bring in Walker for a year. And then hopefully they have Dilson Herrera for five years or more. Or something like that. If they had kept Daniel Murphy, we'd all be really happy this year. But what do you do two, three years down the road when he can no longer play second base? And he's only hitting 280 with a little bit of power. Then you find yourself in a situation where the Mets might not, might not be able to sign another player because they have money tied up in Daniel Murphy. Instead of letting Dilson Herrera play for much less and be much more controllable. There's a really good chance that in two or three years, Dalton Herrera is going to be a better player than Daniel Murphy. And that's why Mets fans shouldn't get too tied up in the present with the way Murphy's playing. It stinks that he had to go to a division rival, but the Mets looks like they made the right call now. And if Dilson Herrera becomes a regular for this team. It's going to turn into the right move for the future as well. This has been Aaron York from Amazing Happy.
The beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal is Mr. Andrew Beaton. He is on Twitter at Andrew L. Beaton, and he spoke with Chris McShane just the other night about being the Mets beat reporter. Take it away, Chris. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Andrew Beaton from the Wall Street Journal. He is the Mets beat reporter there. He got started in that role this year. Andrew, how's it going? Good. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, good. thanks for coming on. Uh, so how's it going so far in the in the first year on the beat? Yeah, I mean, I think in just a couple months we've had we've had about everything. Some some big wins, some crazy cars, a couple of horses, a few reasons to be worried and panicking. It's pretty much everything you could expect in a few months on the Mets beat all all in one, I guess. Yeah, I think uh you came in at exactly the right time, you know. <laughs> it's uh there were several years there that uh, it, it might not have been quite as much fun as it is now, in, in part because the team is good, and then I think any time a team is good, that allows the characters on the team to sort of stand out a little more. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think some of the things you saw go on during spring training, like Cespedes' cars or him and Noah Syndergaard riding the horses, is I think... First of all, I think it's spring training and players should have all the fun they want, but you might not necessarily see that on a team that's that had been coming off a really disappointing year because all the narratives would be wrong or something. It's good to just kind of have a relaxed team that's willing to have that type of fun. So that was definitely a neat start to uh, to the season. Yeah, and uh, Cespedes was the subject of your most recent piece. We're recording this uh, on Monday evening here. And you wrote about his patience uh, and, and the fact that his walk rate is up, but it hasn't hurt his power. Um, I'm just kind of curious to hear about some of the background on, on that piece. You know, Kevin Long sort of came over with this reputation uh, of just being a very good hitting coach. And I think philosophically, he's probably not that different from Dave Hudgens, who preceded him with the Mets. But uh, I was kind of curious to hear a little bit of, the process that went into that piece and, and the sort of things that Long does, maybe on a player-by-player player basis as opposed to team-wide. And, you know, with, with Cespedes in particular, obviously. Well, with Cespedes in particular, I mean, you you can see him and Kevin Long and Cespedes really working together. You could see it at the beginning of spring training. You could see it all throughout the season that those two work really closely together and I think really with hitting coaches everyone always kind of questions their their impact and I think that's true to an extent where it's almost a hitting coach is as useful as a hitter needs them to be and I think what Terry Collins was saying with Cespedes was entering the season that there yet this isn't a coincidence that there was a focus on saying hey let's try and draw some more walks because not only if you're swinging at fewer bad pitches, you'll hit better, but this is a lineup that has pretty much top to bottom power. So if you're getting on base more, that's, you don't need to be the hero every time. If you're getting on base more, there's Lucas Duda, there's Neil Walker, there's guys who can hit behind you. So just getting on base will turn into runs. And I think it's pretty staggering to see him walking in 10% of his plate appearances this year when he had been such a notorious free swinger. He was always this very powerful hitter who we knew could hit home runs, he could hit doubles, but he's always kind of deeply flawed at the plate because if he wasn't killing the ball, he wasn't getting on base. He never walked. He was always below the league average. And then all of a sudden this year, it's doubled over last year. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I'm not sure it's a coincidence that he's hitting home runs at a great rate this year too, better than his career numbers. Because, you know, if he's not chasing bad pitches out of the zone, then he's swinging at the better ones and he's going to hit those better. Yeah, yeah, that that certainly uh, makes sense. And I think something that you pointed out in that piece, too, uh, was pretty relevant, that he's still adjusting, even though he is 30 years old. And, and as you wrote, it's not often that we see players in their 30s make significant changes in their plate discipline. But the adjustment from the Cuban game and strike zone to the American version uh, and, and sort of learning that you know if this walk rate holds up it sort of seems like maybe Kevin Long Kevin Long in a combination of his experience himself as a player over the first few seasons of his career here 
you know, maybe it sort of all comes together and clicks. Yeah, and I think we've anyone who's watched just a handful of Mets games has seen at some point Cespedes chase a high fastball that he can't catch up with because pitchers know that. And the less often he can do that, the he'll be ahead and counts more and swinging at better pitches. And I think that's the one pitch people have really pointed out as a weakness. And the more he can lay off pitches like that, the better hitter he'll be, not just because he's going to be hitting the ball harder, but he'll be getting on base more. And, I mean, if you look down the road, that's going to be huge for him when when he hits free agency, if all of a sudden he's this complete package hitter, where Mets aren't going to be getting a discount if all of a sudden teams are looking at him as a guy who has power and gets on base, because before that he only had one of the two. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think you know at the time that he was signed, it was such a pleasant surprise, and I think everybody came into it sort of expecting it to be a one-year deal, uh, and you know not looking at that as the end of the world for the Mets. But but yeah, if he finishes the year with an above-average on-base percentage and home runs anywhere near the clip that he's hitting them, uh, you know he, he he might get paid the way he thought he would last winter. <laughs> for sure, and I. And who knows, maybe after another good season, that's something the Mets will pay for, and and maybe not. But just the the fact that they're getting that production this year is what fans should be excited about because just that consistency in terms of getting on base will also make him a lot less volatile in terms of his production. It won't just be a home run every four games or whatever. It'll be home runs mixed in with getting on base pretty frequently. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the home runs in general were another thing that you had covered recently. You and Jared Diamond, who's a familiar name for Mets fans from the past few seasons, uh, you joined up and wrote about home runs and New York baseball. You know, it's a problem. (laughs) I don't think it's a problem, but uh, for people who do, it's a problem that Yankee fans had in, you know, recent seasons, and you've seen some of it around the Mets this year of, you know, oh, all they do is hit home runs. Uh, like I said, I I don't see that as an issue. I, I enjoy watching a team that plays like that. But, you know, are you getting that sort of – I know it's been a topic of discussion, but are you getting that sort of reaction in what you've seen as well? I mean – well, I think there's one thing that's a fact. Home runs are a good thing. It's the best hit you can have in baseball. It's an automatic run, and everyone who's on base scores. Home runs are a very, very good thing. I think what's scary, though, is that such a historic level of the Mets' runs have come via the home run. And what's scary about that is that it means they're essentially not producing runs if they're not homering. And I think that's just the type of thing that home runs still don't happen as often as singles or as often as doubles. And I think for a team to only have run production when they're able to clear the fences, it just lends itself to volatility. And you have a pitching staff like the Mets that more often than not pitches well enough to keep them in every game. They don't necessarily need to be relying on this low probability event to put up eight runs in a game. If they score four four most days, you're figuring they win. I'm not saying that less runs is better by any means. I'm just saying it's the type of thing that's going to be frustrating probably the entire season because these things will go in ebbs and flows because, you know, we've seen the Mets get one hit already this year. We've seen in other days – where they hit four home runs, none the next day, and the three of the day the day after. And over the course of the season, those things will all even out. But those, the randomness of a rare event will kind of make it a season of ups and downs where it seems like one day they have the best offense in baseball and the next day they might look completely impotent. And the answer is that they're somewhere in between. But I think it'll come with very high highs and very low lows. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... I think one of the things at this stage of the season is that those numbers of that the team has with the runners in scoring position, uh, they should get better, if only because they should get better over time, not even anything specifically to do with Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think all, all those numbers, they 
really even out over the long run and that if you're hitting poorly with runners in the scoring position, that's probably mostly due to a sample size type thing. But it's also when you're having guys who might be hitting for a lower average in general and be more reliant on more apt to hit homers more often than the regular player, but singles less often and have fewer line drives, more fly balls that those types of issues with running runners in scoring position will happen. And it's, and it's not over the course of the season. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just the type of thing that actually just might be frustrating to watch at times. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that you guys have at the journal is sort of less pressure to, to do things and publish things frequently, uh, but take a deeper dive into topics like this. So yeah, I, I don't, I know you're not going to be looking to scoop yourself on, on the podcast, but is there anything, uh, in, in the works, you know, for this week that, you know, that we might see coming up? Well, I, well, I think a lot of that will depend on how how this series against the Nationals go. I mean, it's fascinating on a number of levels just because the first time the Mets and Nationals are meeting this year. And even though the Phillies, I guess, as of going into the action on Monday night, are half a game ahead of the Mets in the NL East, everyone really expects this division to come down between the Mets and Nationals. And beyond that, you have the return of Daniel Murphy. He's hitting ridiculously well, and that'll be fun. But it'll be interesting to see what the implications are after the series, because one of the things we're taking a look at is pretty much if you look at any starting pitcher in the Mets rotation, there's kind of a question mark sitting with them. With Matt Harvey, you've had his general struggles. With DeGrom, you've had his struggling velocity. With Noah Syndergaard, you have this mysterious elbow doctor visit that nobody knows much about, even though everything seems to be fine. And you also have his struggles to keep runners on base. With Bartolo Colon, there's the his general issue that he seemed to have over the last few years where he can pitch really well against poor teams but struggles against the better ones. And we saw that when he got hit really hard by the Dodgers. And Steven Matz, we have his elbow injury. So I think there's a lot of things for us to watch that we'll see play out in the next week with questions about this rotation that, you know, going into the season, everyone really thought it was this stronghold and one of the most talented ever. That's still probably the case, but there are more questions now than we thought might exist back in February. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Uh, And, you know, hopefully with the, situations with the elbows of Mats and Syndergaard hopefully those are things that are sort of you know footnotes that are not really remembered all that strongly by the end of the season uh but but yeah it's like what's encouraging I think is that you have these pitchers in place and you know if Harvey or DeGrom sort of takes that step forward and and looks like they used to um even just six months ago that that could be something that's really, really good. Um, totally. I think um, almost any other team in baseball would trace their rotation for the Mets <laughs> one. I don't think that that's changed over time, but all of a sudden it's gone from let's see which one of these guys is going to win the Cy Young to let's just make sure everything's on track. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's certainly uh, a legitimate concern in general. It does Is there any... I think the team is usually pretty good at keeping things close, but it was Terry Collins who came out in a press conference sort of unprompted and said, you know, Syndergaard, oh, a couple of weeks ago, he was at the doctor getting his elbow checked out. You know, uh, do you sense anything else coming from the team that in terms of concern? No, with I that? mean, no, I mean, I think you had mentioned the term footnote. I think his is the most footnote of the footnotes in that it was mentioned a couple weeks after he had the visit. He pitched since then. He pitched well. He's reported no pain. He says he's totally fine and that it was just like, hey, super, super precautionary. Let's get things checked out. But I think anytime you hear the word elbow starting pitcher, especially on the Mets staff where Matt, DeGrom, and Harvey have already had Tommy John surgery, you kind of stop in your tracks and wonder, 
well, any time you hear the word elbow in starting pitcher, it's serious. And it's probably nothing. It's probably a footnote. It's just something that keeps you on edge and something to watch out for. Yeah. So uh, the, the last thing I wanted to bring up, I think it was a, a very fun piece that you'd done back in spring training, but it became relevant again because he's actually with the team, uh, at least as we record, he's still on the roster. Uh, Sean Gilmartin and his routine with his, his baseball pants and socks and everything. How did that one come about? And, uh, you know, what was, you know, what was that like interviewing him about that? <laughs> well, I had, it, it started off with, I noticed that he is one of the few players in baseball and really in the mess locker room who still wears stirrups. And I got to asking about that and he goes, well, actually, I actually have a very specific method for putting these stirrups on. And then he got into the, his method of turning the pants inside out and putting them on backwards and upside down. And it's it was all quite entertaining. But I think the fun part about it is that not only is our stirrups a very old school thing and and he likes the old school look, but this is kind of an old school way of how some a, a small portion of the population, baseball playing population, used to put their stirrups on back in the day. It's how he learned it from his father who learned it from his father. And I got emails afterwards from readers saying, you know, when I was playing in Little League 50 years ago, this is how I did it too. And so that made it all really fun to hear from people about and to hear from Sean and his dad about just something you really don't see very much every day. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that that, that was one of the unique things that, uh, that I think is very enjoyable from, from our perspective and, you know, <clears throat> all, all Mets fans. So, well, with that, uh, we're looking forward to reading more over the course of this season and you know happy to have you on the podcast and on the beat joining some of the other characters who are on there yeah um, absolutely thanks so much for having me on i've been a long time listener so it's a pleasure to uh to, to get on here hi it's kate with your new weekly panic city meter so when i pitched this to brian originally the Mets were great, they were winning series, they were sweeping series, everyone looked good, they were hitting home runs every other bat, and this was going to be great. And then things blew up, because that's exactly what happens every time I have a good idea. So since we started planning this, Flores' hamstring is acted up based on the DL, DeGrom's velo is down, Harvey's velocity is down, Darno is in California working with trainers, Matt's had his forearm looked at. Syndergaard had his elbow looked at, Duda was scratched, and Wright was scratched. And I had to write all of this down because there are so many problems on the Mets right now. And Walker hasn't hit in like two weeks, which no one's really noticed yet. So all in all this season, I still don't think we're panicking, except on Twitter because that's what people do. But it's a little concerning when everyone's going down right now, although I guess it's better now than in October. Um, I think the pitchers are going to be fine. We all knew that Wright was going to have issues. Duda's back acted up last year, too. Flores is concerning in so much as we now have Eric Campbell playing games again, which was also inevitable because it's Terry Collins. And Ploiecki has looked good as Darno's temporary to medium-length replacement, which is a nice surprise after he really didn't hit well at all last year. And Sinegar is fine. Mats is due back on Friday. It's looking good. I still have a lot of faith in this team. Um, the Nationals did not look good last night. They haven't. They're not hitting other than Harper and Murphy. And I still don't think Murphy's going to look like this the whole season. The Phillies look good. I don't think it's going to last. The Braves are the Braves. The, the Marlins probably aren't going to be good. And I think our Mets are going to be fine, but we're going to do this every week, and we are going to have some weeks where they look like they're going to be the best team in baseball, and we're probably going to have some weeks where they're going to be the worst, because those are our Metsies that we love and hate to love. So for now, I think we're okay.
Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you to all of our wonderful contributors this week. You can find Brian Renzi at brenz78 on Twitter, Chris McShane at Chris McShane, Kate Feldman at Kate E. Feldman, Steve Schreiber at underscore Mr. Met, and Aaron York at APY5000. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Needs a Nap. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all relevant social media. Just search for Amazing Avenue. Of course, AmazingAvenue.com is your source for the best Mets content on the internet, or so I tell myself at night. Um, not really. We have some amazing stuff on Amazing Avenue just about every day. So make sure to check it out, bookmark it, put it in your RSS reader, whatever it is you do to find things on the internet. You can find us on the internet, of course, at iTunes. Please rate, review, and subscribe there. You can also find us on Stitcher. And please email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We want to hear from you. So until next time, enjoy, and let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.